Hello, welcome to Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Today we are talking about reframing resilience, a particularly timely episode for everything that's going on right now. I'm interviewing an amazing subject matter expert on resilience. Her name is Dr. Taryn Marie. She's the Chief Resilience Officer for Resilience Leadership and the former Head of Executive Development and Talent Strategy and Planning at Nike. Her book, Flourish or Fold, The Five Practices of Particularly Resilient People will be published soon. We did this episode in collaboration with Bitter Grace um, Boutique in DC. This was the kickoff event for the Inner Elegance series for Bitter Grace. So check them out to learn more. It's bittergraceboutique.com. Um, and if you are interested in li listening to previous episodes, you can always find me on Tall Hungry Girl Talks on anywhere that you listen to your podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and your help in providing a review or subscribing or even share with a friend is so helpful in um, being able to spread my messages of feeding your growth and really um, enables me to have even more of an impact and, and spreading knowledge to um, more people. So thank you in advance for sharing. And without further ado, uh, we have the recording from the event. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It is amazing to be here um, and amazing to be with, uh, here with Dr. Taryn Marie. Um, you know, this is so exciting to me because I think it really represents what is so important to me, um, which is partnerships. I think during quarantine, um, my partnerships, my friendships um, really have anchored me <laughs> and helped keep me sane and have been such um, an important part of my own resilience. Um, and so, you know, and I think that this, this is, you know, a culmination of, you know, us coming together and in, in those partnerships and and building resilience. Um, so yes, it's it's great to be here. Um, but diving in, getting on the topic of resilience. Yes. Diving in. Yes. I love that opening. Yes. I love that opening. That was so good. Um, so much. I think that there's a chasm between you know m maybe my own thoughts on it and how our culture glorifies doing going at it. Um, on your own uh -huh. and getting, you know, we really celebrate people that um, get through things by themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we've often heard the term, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm. Is that something that we need to just throw out the window <laughs> and get rid of that? And where, where did that come from? And how does that factor into resilience? Yeah, you know, I, I love what you're saying to hear about the importance of connection, the importance of relationships, the importance, you know, Anne-Marie talked about the importance of partnerships, Yeah, which are, you know, I would think of that as like a more formalized relationship around business or achieving something in that way. You know, last night we were talking about the, the, the inner elegance uh, circle launching and you know, I go, I go back to an African proverb that says, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. Yes. If you want to go far, go together. 
And, you know, what's interesting is in, in the English language has so much wisdom. And when you look at phrases like pull, your up by, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that today has come to mean change your environment, change your circumstances. And that uh, you can do it by yourself, And that you can right? do it by yourself. That you can do it by yourself. You don't need anyone else to help you. But initially, that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, I don't think we have bootstraps. Like in this, <laughs> I, I don't know. We got to check with Anne Marie and see if they're selling bootstraps here. No. At Bitter Grace. I don't think they are. I have never had a pair of boots misrepresent. No. <laughs> but the idea is like a bootstrap closed your, closed your boot. It was very short. And so it wasn't enough fabric, you know, or enough, enough rope, enough of a shoelace, if you will, to do anything with. And so it was the idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps was initially a phrase that was like impossible. Like that's not possible. You need other people to help you. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting today that that's come to mean do it by yourself because what we know is if you want to go fast, you can go by yourself, but very few things that are meaningful in our society happen with just one person typically yeah. it happens in community yeah no definitely and I know um in my life nothing I've done really has ever happened right in a silo no yeah. I mean I, I think of you know like I said this podcast I can't interview myself <laughs> you could you would be super <laughs> interested next up tall hungry girl inter in interviews tall hungry girl yeah. I don't know I don't know how much people like that. Um, but I think, I think the concept of resilience has really evolved over the years. I was having a conversation with my dad, um, who was a counselor. So he's, you know, we always talk about, you know, mental health and stuff like that. And, you know, his generation resilience meant being tough. Mm -hmm. so how is, how is it evolved and how should we really be thinking of what resilience is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like to say, this is in part for effect, but I like to say that everything you thought you knew about resilience is wrong. Yes. I know you talked about myths. <laughs> I want to hear. <laughs> I won't interrupt you. but <laughs> Interrupt away. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so many myths of resilience. And so often, you know, when I kick off a talk or I'm speaking to a group, I'll say, you know, let's just, let's just meet you where you are. Let's get a sense of what you know about resilience and I'll ask people to share words or phrases or public figures that they associate with resilience or maybe even a family member that we wouldn't know. And I'll tell you those words that come through that people share around what resilience means to them are so powerful. But oftentimes, many times, we've really been getting resilience wrong. Should I tell you about the ways we yes. resilience wrong? Is it, is it, <laughs> tell is me. It time? Yes, the time. Okay. Yep. So the ways. <laughs> this, this part, when we did the pre-interview, I was just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You sit, yeah. So I'll let, I'll let you take it. It was but, an aha moment. No, it was. I had an Oprah aha moment uh -huh. <laughs> where it definitely changed. I mean, it's kind of like a switch turn. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I love that. And, and that's one of the exciting things about resilience because I initially got involved with resilience because I didn't know what the word meant. And I thought this sounds really important. This sounds like something I should know more about, but I couldn't figure out what it meant. And so as I've done this research, what I've, what I've come to understand is not only what resilience is, but what resilience isn't. And so the myths of resilience, what resilience isn't, it's really three things. 
And so the first one is, and this is the most pervasive myth, is that resilience is about bouncing back, right? We always talk about, you know, you go through something difficult and you need to bounce back. And I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, I must not be very resilient because I haven't gone back to the way that things were before I experienced a particular challenge. Mm -hmm. And so this is a really important myth for us to understand because people are thinking, if I don't go back to the way I was, my life, the structure, then I haven't been resilient. Yeah. And it's like, who, but I don't want to be exactly the same mm -hmm. after I've, you know, I want to be better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so the, the better part is not bouncing back, but instead bouncing forward. Mm. You know, See, this is where it, this is where it clicked for me. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I love that. And, you know, I mean, I love how you brought up the pandemic, right? That's, that's obviously a, a macrocosm of what we're all, what we're all facing. And it becomes really real for me some days and other days, I suppose I have the privilege of it fading into the background sometimes. Mm -hmm. And initially so many of us said, you know, we just want to go back to the way things were before. We just want to go back to normal, whatever yeah. normal was. And I think there's a couple things there. One is, I don't think we should go rushing back before we know what we're rushing back for. Yeah. There were a lot of things that in our lives, in our society, in our environment, in the social fabric of how we re relate to each other that were not great mm -hmm. about that. And then the second piece is, when we think about going forward, you know, we are fundamentally and forever changed by every experience that we have. So as someone who has studied neuropsychology, who's studied brain injury and spinal cord injury, neurological injury, and many people know this now, there's this concept of neuroplasticity. And what that means is every experience that we have, large or small, our brain is rewiring, maybe just a little or maybe a lot. Our neurons are forming different connections, we're growing different neurons. And so what that means is that our brain is a representation of the experiences that we have in the environment. And so when we face a challenge, we're not going to be the same because our brain grows and rewires just on the inside to accommodate for that new knowledge, for that new learning. So rather than bouncing back, we bounce forward. And to your point, Tahira, that gives us an opportunity to take that wisdom, that strength that we've gained, that empathy, that compassion, and bring that forward. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to go back to work. We're going to go forward to work, yeah. as my as my mentor Keith Ferrazzi says. Yeah. yeah, and I don't, I don't want to go back. Also, you know, to your point, to how we were before we were running around. I think, but you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, I think this time has really taught me the value of people. And um, you know, I like people always say, um, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. I think it takes a village to, to raise a grown-up. Yeah. Only a village? Only takes a village? I'm like, well, the world. house in a village. I know. How many villages we got? Yeah. And so it is, like, you know, you do need that, you know, feeding from everyone. Um, but, yeah, also, like, taking that learning in as, as you're moving and changing. And so, Yeah. Definitely. So what are, what are more of the myths? More of the myths. Okay, so we're going to bounce forward, not back. The second one is oftentimes we think of resilience as being passive. And we also use words to this effect in the, in the, human, or in the human language, in the English language. <laughs> we all speak a human language. Yes. We're actually talking about English here. So, yes. And what we say is 
time heals all wounds, right? Yes. And instead, so that makes us think, okay, well, all I have to do is kind of sit back, watch know, the clock, watch the clock, the pop in a Netflix series, yeah. you know, turn the calendar pages. Yes. Are you still watching? They Netflix asks you. <laughs> uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that it's it's time that heals and that it's not an active process. And so the idea is that. Uh, resilience is active. It's about actively facing our challenges. It's about showing up for our challenges. And it's not a passive process. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about shifting that paradigm between uh, the myth of resilience being passive and the truth of resilience being active, I think it's more akin to what Andy Warhol said, which is time uh, changes things, but you have to change them yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm have that quote on your website that I love. I was like, I need, uh, I need this on a t-shirt or something. I think, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Idea mm, for you. I'm filing that away. Okay. I'm filing that away. Okay. Do we have any more myths? Or we have one that... more myth. Okay. One more myth. So the okay. third and final myth, and people ask this a lot as well, they say, um, well, did I just get a certain amount of resilience when I was born? Or can people be resilient or not? You know, and so the important thing to know here is that re resilience is not uh, finite, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you're sort of inoculated with a certain amount of resilience when you're born and that's it. That's all you get. Yeah. You know, once you eat the chocolate bar, yeah. no more. Gone. Yeah. So resilience isn't finite. It's dynamic. And so it's like a muscle. We can train it over time, just like going to the gym and we can develop our resilience over the course of our lives. And challenge plays an incredible role in that because we learn so much more about ourselves through challenge than we do through success. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the rainstorm teaches us more than the sunshine ever does. Oh yeah, definitely. My life has been adventurous because I've had challenges and it, you know, it makes mm -hmm. you ultimately a better person and a more interesting person. No one wants to talk to someone that hasn't been through anything. Right. Um, so do you, do you think that, resilience is influenced is there any genetic component to it or is it really nurture over nature oh we're doing the nurture the nature versus nurture yes. I like it I because like it you think about you know siblings yeah and they will have experienced the same you know maybe you know a tragic event in their life and they end up handling it completely different you know yeah. maybe one will develop you know some sort of um, addiction issue because of the trauma mm -hmm. and then the other one will go on to become you know a motivational speaker or something mm -hmm. like that based mm -hmm. on but you I think oftentimes you see that in siblings mm -hmm. so what is what is your philosophy on that yeah or do you have one well you know I would say I think we're born with different amounts of resilience mm -hmm. you know there's such a thing in psychology as temperament and temperament is essentially the, you know, generally like the personality you're born with. Yeah. And so when you think of psychology, there's trait and there's state. And so a trait is a steady aspect, a steady aspect of who you are as a person. You know, it's as you grow into adulthood, it becomes your personality. Mm -hmm. You know, and a state is something that's more environmentally dependent. So mm -hmm. it could be getting angry, it could be shouting, you know, someone cuts you off on the road and you're like really angry or, you know, um, you see something that's sad on TV and you cry, mm -hmm. right? That's not part of the continual 
uh, traits of your personality, but it's, it's situation, you know, dependent. And so given that people have different temperaments, we have different personalities, some of us are born naturally with more resilience mm -hmm. than others. Mm -hmm. You know, some of us might start farther down that resilience path, but that's okay mm -hmm. because through life experience, we can develop, we can, you know, one of the things I love about resilience is it, is it meets you where you are. And so wherever, wherever you are, you can enhance your resilience from that, from that place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going back to the sort of nature versus nurture, uh, you know, I think nature, you know, are some of us born with more resilience than others? Absolutely. Can we, through nurture and life experience, continue to enhance our resilience over time? Also, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting because I wanted, you know, that was sort of a question that I wanted to know for myself mm -hmm. because I am very sensitive to the environment. Mm -hmm. I hear loud noises, smells, everything like that. Yeah. And so I know that I take on a lot. Yeah. And so you would think, oh, this person won't be resilient. But I think I've been able to bounce forward <laughs> like that. <laughs> see what you did there. I see what you did. I think I've been able to, you know, bounce forward in a lot of things that have happened. But um, my how I interpret the world is that of someone that's very sensitive. Yeah. And so sometimes that does make resiliency a challenge. So can I see. speak to that? Yes. Yes. So I, I think that if, maybe we have four four myths. Maybe I need to add this to the list. I, I, lo <laughs> I love this. It's just going to keep growing. <laughs> Please. Uh, yeah, you know, that's interesting. So there's, there's this idea of what it means to be uh, a highly sensitive person mm -hmm. or an intuitive person. Yes, which I am. Yeah. Which you are. Yes. I feel that. Yes. I feel you feeling me. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Picking up what you're yeah. putting down. <laughs> And at least, at least here in sort of our, our Western society, we also have other beliefs about resilience uh, when I see it defined. So one is uh, quickly, quickly recovering. Mm -hmm. You know, resilience isn't about speed. It's, it's about integrating that challenge and experience. And in fact, some of the people that have something traumatic happen and they go back to work right away. They jump right back into a relationship. Look, no one can tell you when you're ready. Yes. But oftentimes going back too quickly or trying to resume the life you know too quickly, that can actually be the opposite of resilience mm. because you haven't given yourself time to grieve. You haven't given yourself time to appreciate that challenge, to assimilate the experience. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another is, uh, you know, you talk about toughness, you mm -hmm. know, your in your dad, you know, when your dad was growing up and, and there are also beliefs that in resilience, we're not supposed to feel things. And if you, you know, if you're not Teflon, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And so there is also this myth that if you're sensitive, if you feel things deeply, acutely, if you have emotion, you know, an emotional response, that somehow you're not being resilient. And in fact, so often it's our, it's our feelings that is the information <clears throat> for our soul. Mm. And, and we do an incredible disservice to feelings because we label them. We say, ah, it's good to be happy. It's good to be joyful. It's good to be, um, I don't know, name other like happy, you know, blissful, it's, mm -hmm. you know, 
And uh, I was going to say kind. I was like, that's not a feeling. That's a trait. Anyway, so, you know, and then we say, ah, oh, it's, it's bad to be frustrated. It's bad to be angry. It's bad to be anxious. It's bad to be sad. And the truth is, all feelings are just feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's just an it's information, that, information yeah, that you're receiving. It's yeah. an energetic response yeah. within, our, within our body. But so often we want to ignore the feelings that we think are quote unquote bad, that we label as bad yeah. and, and only attend to the feelings that are good. But feelings are like a faucet, you know, with one handle. So if you decide that you're not going to feel them, it's either all off or all on. Yeah. You know, it's only, it's not, some are going to come through and some, some aren't. So going back to what you shared about being someone who's sensitive, you know, being someone who's sensitive can be, you know, when we harness this strength, when we harness this superpower of sensitivity, you know, because I'm sensitive too, right? And so it's like, yes, we're, we're very, we're very porous. A lot gets yes. in. Yes. And then yes. we have the opportunity to develop strategies to deal with the information that comes in, mm -hmm. how we feel that, how we characterize that, how we decide this is mine and this isn't mine. This is someone else's. I'm not going to mm -hmm. take that on. You know, yeah. how we protect ourselves in our environment, how we're choosy about the types of energy that we put around us. And so feeling things is highly resilient. Uh, it's, it's, it's what we do with those feelings and how we feel about those feelings that makes the difference. Yeah, no, definitely. My dad, because he knows I'm a feeling child, would always tell me to feel is to know that you are alive. Aww. And so you, you always want to make sure that you are feeling because no one wants to be numb to the world because then you're numb to joy, you're numb to, to everything. It's so the, the faucet. Good, yeah. It's the faucet. It's yeah. all off or all on. Yes. If you want to feel joy, you got to feel anger too. Yes. Mm -hmm. there, to every light, there is a darkness. Yeah. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Price of admission. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. That, that's great though. Speed. That's, yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's great. Um, okay. So moving on to some of the work that you've done in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you have worked with patients with traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. And um, in our pre-interview, you mentioned that um, oftentimes the, the trajectory for recovery time um, was, was miscalculated mm -hmm. because there were other factors that would influence yeah. um, that. Can you, can you talk about that? And then, sure. you know, how that led you to, to study resilience? Yeah, abs absolutely. So uh, in high school, a close friend of mine had a, um, well, maybe we weren't close friends at that time. We were, I would say friends. Uh, we were we were friends at that time, and he misjudged his dive. We were both competitive swimmers, and ended up having a spinal cord injury. And I had known throughout middle school and high school that I wanted to go into into psychology or be a clinician or be a therapist in some way. And when I went to visit him in the hospital, I saw how much emphasis was placed on his physical recovery, which is very important, obviously, but how little emphasis was placed or no emphasis was placed on his emotional recovery, mm. his spiritual recovery, what this meant for his identity to one day be this, you know, ridiculously sort of handsome, accomplished swimmer, and the next day to be someone who is in a wheelchair. Yeah. And, and to, you know, sort of go across that chasm and what, what that meant for him. And then expanding the aperture of that, what it meant for his family. Mm -hmm. what it meant for their hopes and dreams for him, what it meant uh, that instead of going to Target in the next couple of weeks following that and getting all the things for his dorm room, 
they were widening the doorways in their home so that his wheelchair could fit through. Mm -hmm. And a dramatic life change. It's a dramatic yeah. life change. And I had so much empathy for what he was facing and what he was going through, coupled with so many gaps or so many opportunities that I saw in terms of how we could help people in those moments that for me, that crystallized the idea that I wanted to uh, go into neuropsychology and also use principles of marriage and family therapy and other types of psychology to not only address the physical rehabilitation, but the spiritual, mm -hmm. the emotional, people's identity and their family's experience. And so I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, I was probably nine years later by mm -hmm. the time I got through undergrad, my master's program, and I was on fellowship. And I, I worked in this incredible uh, hospital with incredible mentors at Virginia Commonwealth Medical University. And so what I noticed when I got there was that when we would see people in the ICU, we'd make a prognosis for how we thought their rehabilitation was going to go using a couple of pieces of information. Or when I was working in our outpatient area, I would look at someone's file and look at the initial prognosis. And then I would look at the person that was sitting in front of me mm -hmm. in the office. And what I realized is we were very often wrong about that. We were very often wrong about that prognosis. And I thought, okay, well, when someone's in the ICU, when someone's in the ER, we need to give them accurate information. And so, so how can we be missing the target? You know, people were doing better than we thought or not as well as we thought, but rarely were we right. And so what that gave us the opportunity to do was to go into that, was to go into the data mm -hmm. and to really look at uh, all of the other factors that might be influencing uh, this person's who's had this neurological injury, brain injury or spinal cord injury, their rehabilitation. And, you know, we found fascinating things. And the one that stood out at the time over a decade ago was this idea that uh, when a person had access to reliable transportation, statistically speaking, that was the difference in their rehabilitation between living independently and living in assisted care mm -hmm. facility. And... So it wasn't about the severity of the injury. It wasn't about, you know, the parts of the body that were injured or not injured. It was like, do you have a car? Yeah. And can you drive it or can someone else drive mm -hmm. it too? You know, that, that was support. A, it was a support. Yeah. It was a community. <laughs> Partnership. <laughs> yeah. oh, it was like a difference maker. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, so many wonderful things happened on that, on that fellowship. And when I was departing from that fellowship and I was starting to think about executive development and leadership development, really moving into kind of more organizational psychology, I was thinking, okay, so we're not all going to have neurological injuries and thank goodness for that, but we all will face challenge, mm -hmm. some version of challenge. And so in those moments of challenge, how do we know that the decisions that we're making are creating a positive or a resilient outcome? In other words, uh, what would be our version of reliable transportation in those moments when we're facing challenge? So that's, that's how it started. Yes. I like to say my patients taught me. Yes. Yeah. That, that's, it's fascinating. Um, so you have a book coming out mm -hmm. and in that book you talk about the five habits of particularly resilient pe mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. What are those habits? Yeah. Tell I, us about that. I will. I'd love to tell you about that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. So we call them, we call them the five practices. The five practices. The five practices. Okay. And that's intentional 
uh, because it's like a practice of yoga or a practice of meditation or really being good at anything, practicing a sport. It's, it's the idea that through practice, you know, we're never perfect. Yes. It's always about progress. Mm -hmm. It's always about just getting a little bit better every day. Continued growth. Yeah, yes, definitely. Continued growth. So I still wanted to know more about resilience. And so I, I've now interviewed hundreds of leaders. I've collected thousands of pieces of data, really asking people one simple but powerful question, mm -hmm. which is um, to think about a time when they faced challenge or significant challenge. And in that moment, what did they do in order to effectively address that challenge? And of course, the word challenge is intentional because a challenge can be positive, a challenge can be adverse or negative, but it allows for the, you know, when we say adversity, when we say obstacle, we assume that's negative. And I think when we look at the challenges that we face in our lives, there's very few challenges that are only positive or only negative, mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, for those of you that are tuning in to the podcast live, you can think of this question for yourself uh, about a time when you've faced a significant challenge and what did you do in that moment? Or maybe you're, you're facing a significant challenge right now and you want to think about what have you been doing to face that challenge. And based on that simple but powerful question, I say it gave rise to the five practices of particularly resilient people because we got to look at the qualitative data and you know what you do with qualitative data for those of you that uh, haven't done qualitative research is, is you take what you learn from people, all those all those bits of information, all that wisdom, mm -hmm. and then you try to say, how does this fit together? You know, how can I create a framework or a cohesive model? And so from that, we had really had five areas where people were talking about resilience. And so the first area is, is vulnerability. Yes, because yes. I, think, I think people often think of, um, as, of resilience as being the opposite of being vulnerable. Indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it goes back to that toughness. Yeah. You know, that stiff upper lip, that mm -hmm. muscle through. Don't Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, I, I'm someone, and, and I think a lot of us as humans feel this way. Let us know what you think. I, I'm, I'm someone, vulnerability doesn't come easy mm -hmm. to me. Uh, you know, I think, I think you know a little bit <clears throat> about my story. You know, I grew up. Uh, in high school, I had a, a stalker who came to my uh, came to my family's home for four years intermittently, and his behavior escalated over time. And so I was in a position of needing to protect myself um, in those times when he would when he would show up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first time that he came, it was early in the morning before school. And his, you know, face, I realized I went over to turn off my stereo, you know. So we may need to talk to some of our Gen Z folks about the stereo later. Put a question in the comments if you don't know what a stereo is. <laughs> Something that played music that was not your phone. Crazy. Yeah. Boombox. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll talk about the butter churn later. <laughs> so, you know, so I went over to turn off my stereo and playing music and there was this face at the bottom of my window. Oh, it was, wow. It was this time, actually. It was, it was October. It was fall. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I was trying to figure out what was going on. In my, I'm 14 years old. I'm a freshman in, in, in high school. And the shades were down all the way. It was still dark outside in the morning. 
And then my window was just kind of cracked up and there was a space at the bottom of the window. And so as he stood up, the light went down his face. And, and in my 14-year-old brain, I was searching through the last 14 years to decide how, like, how do I explain the situation? How do I take what I thought I knew about the world and yeah. explain? How do you handle it? Yeah, yeah. Explain the situation to myself. And what I came up with in that moment was <clears throat> that my dad was outside playing a trick on me. And so I said, dad, and he said, take off your clothes. You're beautiful. And I thought, <clears throat> not dad. And so we, you know, I called for my parents and we called the police and the police came and they said, you know, uh, we're so sorry this happened. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of information to go on. My parents had uh, sort of heard footsteps running down the street and like the fall leaves uh, rustling. And they said, but we think it's just someone passing through the neighborhood. We think it's just a, we think it's just a fluke. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, great. And so this was October. Uh, and so I said, okay. So every time I felt scared or had a nightmare about that, I would tell myself, okay, like it's just someone passing through, just a fluke, nothing to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And it was eight months later in June, my parents were out of town. I always kept that window closed. There was another window in my bedroom that faced the back of the house. And I remember I had gone shopping with my girlfriends at the Gap that day and had bought a new bikini. I was really excited about it. Oh, the Gap. The Gap. Love the Gap. Love the Gap. <laughs> Still exists today. Yes. yes. But I loved it back then. Yes. It was even better. Than yes. That, I might argue. Yeah. Sorry, the Gap. <laughs> so we, you know, I tried on this bikini. I'd just taken the bikini off. I was completely, completely naked. And I heard his voice again. And he said, I've been waiting a long time for this. Oh my gosh. Wow. And so in that moment, three things became true for me. The first was that my childhood bedroom, which should have been the safest place for me growing up, became profoundly unsafe. The second thing was I was naked in front of a man for the first time. And the third thing was I realized this is not a fluke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we called the police again and this, you know, went on for uh, all four years that I was in high school oh, and his behavior would escalate each time. And so I went away to college and my mom called me my sophomore year and she said, um, you know, we believe we know who it might've been who was coming to your window or trying to break into this house the house those years and he was a man who lived he was eight years my senior and he lived about four houses away mm -hmm. and he had started his own painting business and uh, brutally beat and raped uh, a woman in our neighborhood who'd hired him to paint the interior of her of her house Oof. yeah it's it's chilling yeah you know um, so why do I tell you the story about resilience and vulnerability? Well, the first thing is, uh, I think for many of us that have experienced, uh, trauma where we had to, we felt we had to protect ourselves and then we get into environments where people say, no, just be vulnerable. It's like, well, <laughs> I didn't get here. I didn't survive yeah. by being vulnerable. So this is a complete yeah. 180 mm -hmm. from 
uh, my experience. And so when we think about vulnerability, the first thing to know is that uh, it can't. It, it is often very frightening to be to be vulnerable mm -hmm. with each other to tell these types of stories. And the second part about vulnerability is it also uh, pays tremendous dividends. And so, as I tell you the story about my experience, while it's difficult to tell the story, it often creates uh, a greater closeness, a greater sense of connection yes. between us because now you know, we start to feel like we know each other, yeah. you know something. And you can't, you can't, it's kind of like putting a deposit yeah. in a friendship. It's like that. allowing, mm -hmm. you know, the doors to open mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like vulnerability isn't just blind trust, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. burned. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Did you notice that when you said vulnerability isn't blind trust, that siren started going? <laughs> like amplifying your message vulnerability is not blind trust <laughs> like that thank you dc yes you got you me remember one thing today vulnerability is not blind trust yeah <laughs> to hear a haze thank you put that on a shirt that's right that's right yeah so you know so vulnerability is difficult uh what i like to say is there's different versions of vulnerability there's um there's the gummy bear of vulnerability. You know, we all fall into a, a category mm -hmm. of uh, vulnerability as candy. You know, there's the gummy bear, you know, vulnerability comes easy and you're a little squishy. It's so cute, mm -hmm. right? And then there's like the blow pop of vulnerability. You see where I'm going here? Yeah. Hard on the outside, yes. but then you get to a um, mediocre piece of gum <laughs> on the inside. It gets softer over time. Yeah. Right? And there's, then there's the Jolly Rancher oh. of vulnerability, <laughs> which I would subscribe to. You're just tough all the way through. You're gonna kick and scream for vulnerability all the all the like, way. Which is nice. Eventually yeah. you'll melt. But yeah. yeah. And and I say that because people have come up to me after I've done keynotes and after I've been speaking and they've said, Wow, it's so great that you that you're so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, this was a lot of hard work. Yes. And a lot of like waking up in the middle of the night sweating, being like, oh, and I think this was a good idea. And people don't see what goes on behind the scenes That's for right. you to get there. That's right. Um what is, so what is the second? The second practice. practice. We can yes. spend all night on vulnerability. I know. Yes. Um, so I'll say one more thing on vulnerability and then I'll give you the last four. I think when, when we think about our own vulnerability, all of us have an imaginary piece of paper uh, that we carry around somewhere in our pockets. Uh, and it says people would think I was crazy if they knew. And then we fill in that blank. And all of us have at least one thing to fill in the blank there. Mm -hmm. Most of us have a lot more than one, <laughs> myself included. Yes. Yes. yes, truth. So, eating habits included. <laughs> yes. So, all of us have, people would think I was crazy if they knew, and then we fill in the blanks. So we all have this piece of paper, mm -hmm. but we've learned over time that it's not a good idea to tell people about this, and so we kind of fold it up and we just keep it in our pocket. We don't show it to people but we all have that. And the reason that we don't typically get that piece of paper out is because of something called the shame bias or the vulnerability bias, which yes. is this idea that um, when you share a story about yourself, a challenge that, you know, a resilience story, a challenge you face, I think more of you. I'm like, dang, I already knew Tahira was amazing. Hey. hey. <laughs> and, 
you know, I know now I know the story about her and I think even more of you. Mm -hmm. But when we think about our own disclosures, rather than thinking that people will think more of us as we do of others, we fear that people will think less of us, mm -hmm. you know? And so this is the bias, the vulnerability bias, the shame bias. Where we as a weakness. Yes. Yeah. Or the three L's. We think that if we tell people the truth about ourselves, they won't like us, they won't love us, and they might leave. Mm -hmm. you know? And so this is what makes vulnerability so difficult. Mm -hmm. you know? But it is the soil, vulnerability is the soil where authenticity and empathy grow from. Yes. Yeah. Okay, four other practices. Yes. Uh, so there's productive perseverance, which is the intelligent pursuit of a goal, knowing when to pivot in a new direction, and when to be, in the words of Angela Duckworth, gritty yes. and stay the course. Not just like being a bull and trying to ram the door open. Exactly. If, you, if it's closed on you. That's but right. Yeah, no That's right. Okay, this door is closed. Maybe I need to go to a different one. Yeah. And it's, it's as much of an, an art as it is a science. Yeah. You know, because um, there's great stories about, you know, people persevering, you know, Sylvester Stallone and the filming of Rocky and, you know, not only writing that screenplay, but convincing you know, the, um, uh, those making the movie that he should also star in it. Mm -hmm. And then there's other, you know, so that's, you know, staying the course mm -hmm. and then pivoting in a new direction, uh, is about realizing that perhaps we've come to the end of that road and it's time for a new, you know, it's time for a new, a new plan, a new approach. And so Vera Wang is a, you know, many people don't know, Vera Wang is a great example of this. We'll use a fashion example since we're here at Bitter Grace, yes. you know, where she was, she was going to be a member. She wanted to be a member of the U S uh, Olympic skating team. Mm -hmm. And she trained very hard and she didn't make the team. Oh, and so she didn't make the U S Olympic skating team. And so then she thought to herself, okay, well now I've got to pivot in a new direction. What's next? Maybe I'll try fashion. The rest as they say, is yes. history, right? So productive perseverance, the intelligent pursuit of a goal. Then there's connection, which we've been teasing, which is, Again, there's a duality in that. There's the mm -hmm. connection with ourselves, you know, trusting our intuition, uh, not pleasing people, not abandoning people, listening to that still small voice within. Mm -hmm. And then also the connection that we have outside of ourselves with our communities, with our friends, our families, our colleagues, you know. Uh, the fourth practice of particularly resilient people is uh, gradiosity. Gradiosity. If you haven't heard that word before, it's okay because I made it up. <laughs> Little known fact. Like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. I like it. So what we wanted to do, people were talking about gratitude in facing challenge and people were talking about generosity. And I thought, can we smoosh mm -hmm. those together? It's a technical qualitative term actually to smoosh. Yeah. Just so you know. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. To smoosh. I smooshed it. Yeah. Past that. Yeah. And so that's about when we face a challenge, being able to see the good in the challenge, mm -hmm. not just the adversity. Sometimes mm -hmm. that takes time. And then the gratitude, or, or sorry, the generosity part is about being willing, in part through the practice of vulnerability, to share uh, our, our challenges, our, our lessons, even our mistakes broadly with others so that others can learn uh, generously, vicariously through these experiences mm -hmm. we've had. And the fifth and final practice is the practice of possibility, which is really exciting, I think, especially in the midst of the pandemic. And this is the practice of really being able to navigate, again, a duality 
of risk versus opportunity. And so the, you know, the Chinese character for crisis, many people know, is a composition of two characters, the character for danger and the character for opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so when we're in this moment of possibility, when we're facing challenge, it's about attending appropriately to the risk, the fear part of that. But it's also about being able to see the opportunity in that moment as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully people can use some of these practices and incorporate them in their own life. I hope so. Um, and, and just offering yourself grace in the, the process of becoming more resilient, especially during a global pandemic. Did you say bitter grace? <laughs> yes, actually. Bitter grace. As I look at Anne-Marie. Um, well, I, you know, I know that there are plenty of questions out there. And so I think we're going to open it up to um, questions. But thank you so much for uh, being here, for allowing me to interview you. Um, this is just been such an awesome opportunity and I hope that people um, will be able to incorporate some of what they've learned today um, into practice in their own lives and remembering some of the, the, the myths also of resilience, of what it really means to be a resilient person. Um, so where can they find you? Yeah. Well, right now you can find me at the Bitter Grace Boutique <laughs> yes. in Washington, D.C. Which yeah. is opening on Friday. Opening on Friday. Yeah. Uh, but when I'm not here, yeah. you can also find me online. Uh, so we've got a beautiful website uh, called Resilience, with a C, resilience-leadership. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, uh, we've got some daily uh, resilience inspiration on Instagram. And there is Dr. Taryn Marie. Uh, also on Facebook and LinkedIn, and um, I'm trying to think if there are other places. That sounds good for now. Okay. Seems like a yeah. Lot. No, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Go to there. Yes, and you can find me um, on my website at tallhungrygirl.com, and on Instagram at tallhungrygirl. 